Another week, another snowfall, and another national news story broken by the Times Union. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the week's top headlines. We knew that they had been stonewalling, we've discussed it before, but they were doing it expressly to prevent political blowback. We'll get the latest on an FBI investigation into the Cuomo administration's handling of nursing homes during the pandemic. These days it must feel a little bit like the sky is falling if you're working on the communications team for the governor. And we'll hear from the Times Union's new arts and entertainment reporter. So what's surprising and really nice actually about the capital region is that the arts is still thriving. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. Okay, let's start with a look at what appeared this week in the Times Union and on timesunion.com. We are here once again with Times Union editor Casey Seiler to go over top headlines this week. Uh, We had some big news that broke. The FBI is investigating the Cuomo administration and their COVID task forces handling of nursing homes during the pandemic. So there's a lot to unpack here, and we will hear more about this from our Capitol Bureau later in the show, but let's have the 35,000-foot view from you. The short version is we are only a week since the revelation first reported in the New York Post that Melissa DeRosa, who's Cuomo's top aide, and other uh, leading state officials, including the health commissioner, met with a group of lawmakers. And in that meeting, Melissa DeRosa revealed that the state, quote unquote, froze in its response to requests for data on the the true tally of nursing home residents who died amid the the coronavirus. That um, raised a hailstorm of criticism from people who said that this indicated that the administration was essentially stonewalling. I mean, we knew that they had been stonewalling. We've discussed it before, but they were doing it expressly to prevent political blowback. Um, The administration denies that, but there you go. But now, as revealed by our own Brendan Lyons on Wednesday evening, the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of New York, which is in Brooklyn, has launched an investigation into the conduct of the governor's coronavirus task force that includes Howard Zucker, the health commissioner, and a number of other Cuomo insiders in terms of their handling of nursing homes. Now, no one has been accused of anything yet. It appears that this investigation is in in its early days, but it's really bad news for the governor on top of the criticism that his administration has been facing over the course of the last week. It has deepened the schism between the executive chamber and state lawmakers as we come into really, you know, the most intense six-week stretch of the state budget negotiation, which is meant to round up in, in March. No doubt a major story that we're following. And again, we'll have more on that coming up in this episode uh, from some Capitol Bureau reporters. They've been fiercely reporting and breaking news left and right on this. So uh, something to look forward Indeed. to. Yeah. 
There will be a mass vaccination site opening in Albany early next month. Uh, Can you tell us what's happening there? Yeah, the Washington Avenue Armory, a venerable, you know, downtown institution. Um, I think many people probably know it from going to see Albany Patroons games there, will be the site of a mass vaccination facility starting in March. One of about a half dozen around the state, Rochester, Yonkers, other places will get them. All of them are designed to reach out to communities that otherwise might have difficulty getting the vaccine. In other words, we've talked a lot about so-called vaccine hesitancy among communities of color, as well as economic disparities and retail infrastructure that doesn't um, exist to the extent that it needs to, to get the shots in people's arms. The uh, Washington Avenue Armory is, of course, very close to Arbor Hill, very close to West Hill, and not so far from Albany's South End, um, all of them uh, neighborhoods that include large communities of color. So that's a, that's a good thing. Uh, in other news, two local men who were charged in connection with the January 6th Capitol rioting, that's the U.S. Capitol, they're now getting hit with more charges. Uh, so what's the latest there? Yeah, Brandon Fellows, who is a Niskayuna, 26-year-old, he's facing uh, five counts, including a felony obstruction charge for his action. Um, Fellows has made a couple of kind of weird uh, media appearances, including an interview with WNYT, in which he was sort of, you know, dressed in sort of full, weird beard disguise. And James Bonet, who is 29 and hails from Glens Falls, he was initially charged with two misdemeanors, but now he's facing four, including felony charges, as our Rob Gavin reported. Both of them, intriguingly, allegedly smoked marijuana inside the Capitol on uh, January 6th. So young men, big trouble. Uh, Now, moving over to recreational news, uh, we're seeing another pandemic casualty, and that is axe throwing. What's the deal there? Yeah, Chris Churchill's um, column that appeared in print in Thursday's paper notes that the state liquor authority was absolutely okay with mixing alcohol and axe throwing up until now. And now a couple of axe throwing establishments have been told that pandemic rules that um, preclude patrons in bars, for example, from throwing darts effectively should preclude them from throwing axes as well. And obviously, if you're if you're an axe throwing establishment and you can't throw axes there, um, all you can do is kind of sit at a table and drink beer. You're you're pretty much going to be out of business. It is the axe throwing that is their big appeal. Very few bars um, say, you know, come for the beer, stay for the darts. Um, But for axe throwing businesses, it's kind of different. I have to say in full disclosure that I was surprised by how much I enjoyed axe throwing the time that I tried it. And you haven't so, lost a finger or suffered any other major major wound, right? Nope, nope, not that I know of. Good. And I hit the bullseye too. Show off. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't get it on video though, unfortunately. All right. So lastly, this Sunday, the paper is publishing a special section that celebrates Black History Month. However, we've also been featuring stories online every day uh, that celebrate Black History Month. Can you talk to us about some of the latest and maybe what we have to look forward to in this special section on Sunday? 
Yeah, I've been I've been uh, looking through some of the some of the stories. Our Gary Hahn is overseeing that section, and it's it's going to be pretty pretty terrific, I think. Among the really good yarns in there, C.J. Elias uh, looks at the role that the Brothers, which was a self described black militant organization in Albany that was active in the in the sixties, and the role they sort of played in the weeks after Martin Luther King's assassination, and how um, you, you reading the story, you could probably say that they helped kind of pace and provide an outlet for um, public outrage, especially, uh, of course, outrage from Black people in Albany. While, of course, there was a lot of anger that was let out, you could make the case that it prevented the kind of large-scale, uh, very violent protests that cities like Chicago or Washington, D.C. experienced. Leon Van Dyke, who was a leader of, of the Brothers and a longtime social justice uh, warrior in Albany, spoke to CJ and kind of offered some perspective on those days. And Abigail Rebel uh, did a story about the Schenectady-based Negro Leagues baseball team, the Mohawk Colored Giants, who had a huge following and included players that were it not for segregation in the major leagues, um, you know, pre Jackie Robinson would have gone on to fantastic careers. And um, it's really a great coverage. I encourage people to check out this section. For sure. And we've done stuff on the Mohawk Color Giants before. We talked to Joyce Bassett in a previous episode where we discussed how Major League Baseball is finally recognizing the statistics from the Negro Leagues as official. So we should see a lot more exciting news coming from that once they're able to tally them. Now, you can read about everything that we discussed in this segment on timesunion.com. Highly encourage you to head over there. And Casey, we will talk to you next week. Jess, thanks a lot. Have a great day. The Times Union broke the news this week that Governor Andrew Cuomo's COVID-19 task force was under investigation by the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office in Brooklyn. That would be for its handling of nursing homes and long-term care facilities during the pandemic. The story's part of escalating coverage of the issue that's been mounting in the last month. It picked up steam when New York Attorney General Letitia James in January released a scathing report showing that the state underreported nursing home deaths due to COVID by as much as 50 percent. Times Union Capitol Bureau Managing Editor Brendan Lyons, who broke the most recent story, spoke with reporters Amanda Fries and Ed McKinley about the latest on our sister podcast, Capital Confidential. And here's a snippet of their conversation this week. Ed and Mandy and our Capitol Bureau have been all over the story of the Cuomo administration's response to the nursing home crisis. The now we know a pending federal criminal investigation of that and the legislature's unrest with what has happened to them as they were brushed aside, they learned recently. And Mandy, why don't you set the stage for us on that? What what unfolded last week that sort of set this on fire a little bit? Yeah, what, there was a lot of things that went down last week. It, this was, I believe, a week after um, the attorney general released uh, her report on nursing homes that found underreporting of nursing home uh, deaths due to COVID by as much as 50%. So it was coming off of that. And then there was the court case that 
a judge decided upon specifically with regard to Empire Center for Public Policy had requested the nursing home death data um, and some other specific uh, statistics and had not received a response, took them to court and the judge ruled in their favor for transparency, ordering the Cuomo administration to turn over that information. And finding uh, that they, they essentially uh, violated the provisions of the Freedom of Information Law, which correct, yeah, not a shock to many of us who have been on the waiting end of a FOIL request with this administration. Certainly not, but I, I want to say this is probably one of the few times we've heard a court rule in favor of providing answers to FOIL requests when it comes to the Cuomo administration. Uh, so I, I think that was pretty huge. The other item, I, what was Let's the- Let's talk about was, that secret meeting, Ed. A secret yeah. meeting, that's right. Uh, that was at the tail end of last week, which is um, something I was not involved with, but saw unfold you know, on the sidelines here. And it's just kind of been the gift that keeps on giving ever since. Yeah, uh, I think it, uh, it, these days it must feel a little bit like the sky is falling if you're working on the communications team for the governor. He released the, the full transcript of the meeting from last week. And the meeting from last week was held with Democratic uh, Assembly and Senate chairs of the various committees that had to do with nursing homes. And the purpose of the meeting was to answer these 17 questions that they had asked back in August. So here we are, you know, six months later, and they're, they're getting around to answering it, which the Democrats brought up in the meeting. But the meeting, there was a comment that Cuomo's top aide, Melissa DeRosa, made that the reason it took them so long to answer these questions was because Trump ordered an investigation by his Department of Justice into Cuomo. So we froze. We just froze. We were afraid that this was going to be used as a political football. We were concerned that it was going to be taken out of context. So we paused and we didn't answer the questions from uh, our colleagues over in the legislature. Um, so that section of the meeting was a big story from the New York Post. And that really reframed the whole conversation, I would say. And I will note there's one uh, interesting nugget in there about the AG's report, which is that Attorney General Letitia James only gave the Cuomo administration about an hour's heads up before releasing this report that brought this issue to a whole new level and said that, you know, they had undercounted by as much as half. We knew when that report came out that the Attorney General had not shared it with the administration because the embargo included a directive that reporters not contact the governor's office, who often likes to fight back on reports such as this, edit as much as they can. And, and we didn't see that. The other thing is these participants in that meeting, all Democratic chairs, mostly, of the the very committees with the authority to subpoena the administration. And it was interesting that this was a partisan meeting rather than a meeting with you know, the ranking members included, or, you know, even the majority or the minority leaders in those houses too. So that was a major blow to Melissa DeRosa and the governor who then tried to walk back and explain this, but it fell short of an apology, right? Yeah. So I would, I would add, you know, so obviously we've seen a lot of fallout from this and now there's, there's renewed calls for investigation and for subpoenas. The Democrats are, are going to hold a vote. It was reported last night on um, repealing Cuomo's emergency powers that he's held since last spring. And of all this fallout, you know, I think it's interesting to place in the context of 
this is a governor that I wrote about this in the fall is like uniquely viewed as as powerful and sort of controlled everything in the state. And now we're seeing the attorney general drop this big report without giving him a heads up. And the Republicans are, are attacking him in a much more personal way than they were in the past. And now even the Democrats in the in the uh, legislature are starting to buck him a little bit. And it, it really feels like he's uh, he's losing the reins a little bit. Ed, tell me a little bit about your encounter with the U.S. Senate Majority Leaders, newly appointed U.S. Senate Majority Leaders, first visit to Albany since becoming that role. And tell me about when reporters who were there not so much to cover his restaurant aid proposal, but to ask him about the Cuomo situation. What happened when people tried to ask him about that? Yeah, so typically when Chuck Schumer or Chris and Gillibrand will be visiting New York. They'll be having, you know, their pet policy of the day that they want to talk about. And they'll give a few speeches and then they'll say, okay, I'll take questions on this. And then people ask a few questions on that and then they'll say, okay, now we'll open the floor to other questions. And as reporters, we're not bound to follow, you know, we'll only ask, ask questions about this. So they just sort of do it as a courtesy. So we're all meet, waiting at this event and he's talking about restaurants and there's a bunch of reporters from the LCA, like it's very clear that people are there because they want to ask about this unfolding nursing home scandal. And, and he wraps up and he says, you know, any questions about my restaurant policy, any on topic questions. And, and there's one person who has a couple questions, but everyone's kind of quiet. He's like, any other questions, any other questions? Okay, great. And he turns on his heel and walks out the back door of the restaurant through the kitchen into a waiting car in the parking lot and speeds off as reporters walk out the door to try to try to catch him. So truly, it was it was obvious to absolutely everyone in the room that he the last thing in the world he wanted to do was answer questions about Cuomo nursing home. Yeah. And he got called out on it not long ago. Uh, Nick Langworthy, the state GOP chair, held a news conference in front of his office, his Albany office, Schumer's Albany office. And initially, the press conference was going to be t that Schumer demand uh, a federal investigation of the Cuomo's, Cuomo administration's nursing homes. But it turned out that pivoted to he wanted Schumer to come out from hiding and, and comment on this, which clearly the Senate majority leader is not comfortable doing. And it's worth noting that the some of the Republican, uh, Schumer's Republican colleagues in the Senate are calling for investigations. A bunch of the Republicans on the Judiciary Committee sent a letter last night um, demanding investigations into Cuomo. This is very quickly becoming, you know, a national story and something that that Republicans across the country are are weighing in on and, and calling for investigations into. Michigan lawmakers have have reached out to their Republican colleagues in Albany to ask them how it came that the attorney general investigated, did that nursing home report. Michigan is looking for the same thing to be done there. And it's certainly a national story. And of course, we got to break a little scoop last night with the news that the Eastern District U.S. Attorney in Brooklyn has launched an investigation using the FBI's New York Division of the Cuomo administration. What remains to be seen now is whether that will be a full, full out investigation or just a checking of the boxes to clear the governor's actions on this and move on. We'll have to see. Obviously, the our player coach editor, reporter, Brendan Lyons, like Bill Russell is reporting that story out. But it was interesting that the governor's spokesman, Richard, as a party in that story says, you know, we've known for months that DOJ was investigating us. Melissa DeRosa said last week in the call 
that the DOJ investigation had concluded. So for, for Rich to be equating this DOJ inquiry with the FBI investigating the governor's administration, that seems, you know, just at face value to be untrue. Yeah. I had a funny text from Rich. I had sent an email when we were about to publish a story last night for comment on the investigation, which I, I, I don't know that the administration was aware of the Eastern District investigation. I have doubts that they were, but if they received subpoenas, which they may have, and it appears they did, they probably were aware. Uh, but it was a funny thing when I asked them about the investigation and whether any members of the administration had been interviewed and had they received any subpoenas, he responded in a text to me that I needed to start including subject matters in my emails. <laughs> After the break, meet our newest reporter, arts and entertainment writer, Shrishti Matthew. Hi, I'm Casey Seiler, editor of the Times Union. Join us for an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium, the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation, that resulted in Ranieri's conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and more. We talk to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. The newsroom welcomed a new reporter this month. Shrishti Matthew joined our features team as an arts and entertainment reporter. Originally from India, she earned her master's degree in journalism from the Newhouse School at Syracuse University last year. I pulled her aside for a few minutes this week to get to know her a little bit as she's getting to know the capital region. So tell me what, you know, inspired you to pick journalism as a career? I've always enjoyed writing. I went to a Montessori school and kids were allowed to pick whatever work they wanted. And my English pile would be like an inch thick. And my, my math and science piles would have like three or four papers just like lying there. More than that, I've always enjoyed talking to people and telling people things. I kind of combined the two and turned that into journalism. And I started doing student journalism back in the sixth grade. I would cover like really funny things like art camp or like, um, uh, what was another story that I did? All right, there was a a nonprofit that organized um, a cultural program, a culture festival for all the orphanages in the city. So I remember going to like cover that and they gave me these tiny official looking business cards and I felt like so cool with them. I used to give them out to everyone and everyone was horribly patronizing now that I look back, but <laughs> I felt like a professional. You and were then a professional. Got, yeah, I was, I was 10, but yeah, that was nice. And then when I did my first internship as an actual reporter with a newspaper, it was like Murphy's Law. Everything that could go wrong went wrong with my first story. 
I couldn't find the place I was supposed to go reporting. Um, I couldn't like meet with the PR agent. Um, and my phone died. And then just as my phone died, I was like frantically pressing on it and trying to like call someone. And then a crow decided to do the deed on my phone. <gasps> yeah. It wow. was just like the worst day. And the, I had to like... I was covering this charity event by a bakery. So I went to their baking facility and it was so hot because there were such massive ovens over there. It was just such a bad experience. Oh no. And I, but I went home and I typed it out. And at the end of the day, I was like, you know what? This actually feels pretty good. And it's the same feeling that stayed with me through all my, you know, student reporting and freelancing. And even right now, like you file something and you're like, you know what? This wasn't so bad. This was worth it. Writing it all down, it was worth it. Yeah, you see your name and you see your everything that you wrote. That is a great feeling. You're right. So now you are a feature on the in our features department and you are covering arts and entertainment. So can mm-hmm. you tell me kind of what you've uh, taken in so far? I know it's only been three weeks, but like what what have you been interested in? What what sticks out to you in this region? What sticks out to me is the fact that things are still going on. So I have been doing arts reporting in a freelance and internship capacity for the past year, especially through the pandemic. And I've reported so much about how things have shut down. Things are underfunded. People have lost jobs and like senior musicians and artists. So what's surprising and really nice actually about the capital region is that the arts is still thriving. It has downsized, of course, what hasn't. But it's there and there are people who are there to make sure that it continues. And I think that's something we really need because art is, I mean, that's something, it's something you need for the soul. I mean, yes, you need to, you need food and shelter and clothing and education and everything, but you need this for your soul to become a better person, to learn more about the world. And in general, it just, it also gives you an escape from like the mundanity of everyday life. And I think it's really awesome that it's still happening here and that people are there to support it and go in for it. I can't wait to go back to the theater, you know, like that's one of the things that I've just been craving lately is to just go back to Proctor's or the palace and just sit and take in a show. Theater is something you need to be there. You need you need to experience it. And you take that away because when you look at television or cinema, it's made for the camera. So that's that's the medium you're supposed to be viewing it in. You view a medium that's supposed to be viewed live through something else. It just, you're not going to, it's not going to hit the same way. So, so to sort of talk more about what you cover, what specific, do you cover all of arts and entertainment or are there niches that you um, have, you know, been charged with covering so far? I am trying to do everything as much as possible because also versatility as a reporter, that's something that's important to me. So far, I've been covering pure arts. So things like theater, music, composition, things like that. I've done only like three or four pieces so far. So there's not much to talk about. But um, that is where I'm going right now. I hope that as the weather improves and people start coming out, I've heard of a few good potential projects that people have told me about as I've been interviewing them. I'm honestly looking forward to that because that's what the summer has. And everyone has managed to adapt their work to be something that's enjoyable in a safe and socially distanced manner. So, you know, you're not asking to have people packed into a theater again, whether they're vaccinated or not. I'm looking forward to it. 
what are your favorite things to cover? Like, do you prefer to cover theater? Do you prefer dance? Do you prefer movies? Like, what are your favorite topics to cover in the arts and entertainments field? Theater, definitely, because I think there's like so many stories over there. There's the plot of the, the play itself. There's so many mini plots. There's so many things you can read into. There's the way the actor looks at it, the director looks at it. And it's, it's a collaborative art, so it's multifaceted. Music too, I'm a little scared when it comes to covering music because like, I'm not a musician myself, but when it comes to that, I'm usually in awe of what people do. Cause like, I recently wrote a story about a 20 year old composer. And I was just like, he's 20 and he's already written so much. I mean, and he's done so much. And when I was 20, I was a mess. So um, music is something that kind of awes me as a reporter when I'm covering it. Cause I'm just like, am I doing it justice? I haven't covered dance really yet. I would like to. And I would like to go to covering musicals. That I started my career at the wrong time to want to do that. But I really hope, especially like I want to go watch Hamilton on Broadway and I want to watch Mean Girls on Broadway. It's a cult classic. I've loved it since I was 13. It's a great one. It's a good movie. It is. <laughs> I still quote it. I think I quote it fairly regularly, at least once a week. I do too. Have you noticed differences in, you know, your experience reporting here versus maybe back home or, you know, in school? Like, what are the differences? Language, for one, um, British English versus American English. It still happens all the time where I will say coriander instead of cilantro or uh, tomatoes or oregano instead of tomatoes and oregano. Or like when I'm writing, I will like, you will see a lot of the Oxford comma in my writing. It's just there. I've been trained and programmed. It's not going to stop. But um, that's what we have editors for. They are the ones that, you know, <laughs> massage the style, right? <laughs> yeah. But culture wise, I think every place is different. Like it was different in Syracuse where I went to school and it's different here in Albany. Of course, it's different back home because that's like all the way on the other side of the world. So it's a completely different culture. There's many subcultures. And there's many layers. I could not do justice to it trying to explain it over here. More than anything else, I think that art supporting here is, to begin with, there's more of it. There's not as much of it back home. There is definitely an up and coming scene, which I hope to be able to contribute to someday. But I don't think there's enough reporting on arts and culture that could do justice to the depths of arts and culture that we have back home in India. I've lived in the United States for a total of two years now. And I still think that there's a long way for me to go. But I also think that I need to also report about where I come from, go back to my roots at some point and give back that way. So there's that too. That's great. That's great. Well, I look forward to reading everything that you write here. And we're so happy that you're with Thank us you. at the Times Union. And I hope that live theater comes back the way it used to yeah. be. I want to go watch something at the egg, actually, because when I looked up Albany, that was the first thing that struck me. And I was just like, oh, my God, they have a theater in the shape of an egg. And then I saw it when I first came here and I was like, that's the egg. And one of my friends was like, what do you mean egg? And I was just like, no, it's a theater. It's in the shape of an egg. And she was just like, that's weird. That's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. 
The Eagle is a production of the Albany Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom.